Hi, this is Jim Swilly. Welcome to Metron Live. Metron is a Greek word that means sphere of influence. I believe in living your best life possible, and that's the reason for this podcast. This is my Metron. Now let me help you discover yours. Uh, let me remind you that next Sunday morning, September 4th, I will not be coming to you. Hey, Terrell. Teasy. Uh, I will not be um, coming to you live from the rooftop. We'll be in the theater. Hey, Becky. Good to see you on here. Uh, we'll be live in the theater. We do uh, first Sundays of the month there. We're at uh, Landmarks Midtown Art Cinema right there on Monroe Drive. Hey, Howie. Howie, where are you? You're at, are you out in the ocean somewhere? Or are you in? You're in Europe somewhere, whatever time zone you're in. Hey, Eric from up in Chicago. Um, what What are you ready for, Rhonda? To be in the theater? Good. Uh, it's not directly across from Piedmont Park, but it's sort of cat corner across from the park. And for those of you that don't like to drive in Atlanta, let me tell you the traffic at at 10 and 11 a.m. in Atlanta, it's, 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 no, there's no traffic. You'd be fine. Stop using that for an excuse and uh, come see us in the theater. We'll be there at 11 a.m. Listen, when we're in the theater, we stream live from the Metron community page. You're in the U.K.? Oh, okay. Well, wave to the royal family for us. Um, yeah, where in the world is out? <laughs> anyway, um, 11 a.m., uh, Jonah Swilly. Hey, Gigi, good to see you from, where did you, Gigi, I know I met you in California, but you live in Texas, I think, right? Hey, Elwood. Um, hey, Samantha, good to see you. Anyway, we'll be in the theater next Sunday, September 4th. Jonah, my son Jonah, who just got back yesterday from, I think he's been in Croatia and all kinds of places in Europe doing a, um, a quick tour. Oh, Houston. I thought I thought it was Texas. And um, Jonah's been a part of Metron since we started. We've just celebrated. Hey, Paul. We, we're, believe it or not, into our ninth year now at um, Metron. It's, hard. it's just nearly impossible to believe it's the time has gone that fast. But anyway, next Sunday morning, 11 a.m., Landmarks Midtown Art Cinema uh, in beautiful, historic Midtown Atlanta. Hey, Valerie, good to see you on here. And um, then we'll be back in the theater first Sunday of October. The other Sundays I'll be coming to you live from downtown. And uh, then the, the main thing is um, make sure you're signed up for Meditation Weekend uh, number 16. It's going to be in Chattanooga, Tennessee uh, on October 29th and 30th. Hey, Jeanette from down in Florida. Um, we've already got a really good group. Uh, hey, Beach, you like my hat? My, you know, I was trying to, uh, you remember the um, Elton John's Greatest Hits first album that came out with his hat and his sunglasses? I'm, I'm going for that look. I'm going for 70s Elton John, but thank you. And um, the last time we were in, Ch well, first of all, Chattanooga in the fall is always magical anyway. Uh, it's worth um, it, it's worth just a trip to Chattanooga, but uh, when we bring the synergy of um, as wonderful as the hey Aunt Doris, good to see you on here. Um, as wonderful as the beach events are, and they're spectacular. This last one we had in 
St. Simon's just was off the charts. But there is something equally magical about the mountains uh, in that area, Tennessee area. Tennessee so beautiful, especially in the fall. So um, just make your plans. To, just do it. Just make your plans to be there. Some of you tell me every time we're going to go to the next one. You've been saying it for 16 times now. You just need to. You just need to do it. And uh, Chattanooga is not that far from here. We we drive up to Chattanooga all the time just for, for lunch or whatever. From from my front door, it's I don't know 90 minutes maybe. But um, if you need information, just scroll up to the um, cover photo on my page here. Hey Cheryl. Cheryl, aren't you from New Orleans area, if I remember, Cheryl? Remind me. <clears throat> um, but uh, scroll up to the cover photo. Hey, Greg, good to see you on here. Glad you're here. Hey, Deirdre. Hello, hello. Um, scroll up to the cover photo on my page, and uh, it's it's self-explanatory. You can just, you, you don't even have to be invited in. Just join the group. Um, and uh, all the information is there so um, you will not be disappointed so remember those those two things especially next Sunday in the theater September 4th meditation weekend number 16 in beautiful Chattanooga just do it all right um, let's make some affirmations when I point to me I say it when I point to you you say it don't just say it in your head say it out loud release that energy out into the universe. So um, I, I am blessed. I am a blessing. I am. I am is the highest affirmation. We always want to work up to that. Um, I am free. I am freedom. I am. I am joyful. I am joy. I am. Um, I am happy. I am happiness. I am. Um, I am liberated. I am um, liberty. I am. Oh, okay. I thought I remembered it was a New Orleans connection, but now you're in Old Hickory. I love that area up there. Um, I am well. I am wellness. I am. Um, I am peaceful, I am peace, I am, I am loving, hey Miss Barbara, I am love, I am, beautiful, now let's add uh, a little bit of breath work, the, the reason I like to do some breath work before I give you the word, and I've got a, a good one for you today, but um, breathing, it's a great meditative exercise anyway, but when you do it right before you receive a word, it's it's kind of like what we used to do through an hour of praise and worship. You can just get there easily with just the breathing techniques. You you enter into a place of serenity, and it it's kind of like um, a palate cleanser, so that you're ready to uh, receive uh, the manna from heaven. All right. So uh, we're going to go into the nose, hold it out through the mouth. Let's go in, hold. Inhale, 
hold, exhale, inhale, exhale, in, Beautiful. Affirmations with breath work is a great um, prep for what I'm about to share with you right now. And um, so I speak into this atmosphere and I say, let there be light. My deep calls unto your deep. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me to preach liberty to the captives kingdom of God is like a man who brings treasure out of his home, both old things and new. So for these next few moments, we say words that will uh, change lives and in a small way, without sounding grandiose, will alter history because they're affecting people who will hear this, who will ultimately think differently and make better choices in their life. Yes, it is 11-11, Elwood. You are correct. All right. So um, I'm going to minister a, a passage of Scripture that I honestly can't remember if I've ever used this as a, as a text before. Um, anyway, in the 14th chapter of Acts, uh, Hey, Mom. Hey, Miss Leona and Ernie. And yes, so be it, Jeanette. All right. In the 14th chapter of Acts, by the time we get to that area of Acts, you're kind of following Paul in his journeys into Asia Minor. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like God or the universe played this nearly like a cruelty joke on Paul because Paul did not like Gentiles. And so he gets called to the Gentiles. He felt superior to Gentiles, and he spends uh, out the rest of his life um, ministering to people that he really didn't think that much about. I think he evolved in that, but you know, here he was the Paul was to Israel what uh, Socrates and Plato were to Greece and Rome. He was he was schooled uh, under the in the law under Gamaliel, who was well, let me say this. Paul wasn't necessarily that. Gamaliel was. I, well, that's a better state, statement. Paul was schooled by sort of the um, top-tier uh, teacher in the law. And, and it's kind of lost on him now because all these people he ministers to, unless you believe he wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, which the Hebrews isn't signed, but... You know, he spends all this time ministering to people who didn't know anything about Moses' law. So all of that education, it, it was like going for a great degree that you never use. So anyway, um, when we get to chapter 14, there's a story. He's in an area. There's these cities mentioned like Lystra and Derby and Iconium. And uh, that area would be now what is Greece and Turkey around that area. So in chapter 14, in verse 8, Acts 14, 8, they're in this area called Lystra, a city called Lystra, L-Y-S-T-R-A. And, um, you know, the, the, 
the apostles kept working miracles after the day of Pentecost. And so Paul comes across this man that can't walk, and he just tells him to stand up, and the man stands up. The man gets healed. Which by by this time is it's not that unusual. I mean they've been they've been doing this kind of thing for a minute. But that particular city just kind of goes nuts over this miracle. They just they'd never seen anything like it. And um, th these people were not part of the Abrahamic covenant. The, these these were what what the Jews would have called pagans. They worship Jupiter and Zeus and all of these uh, planets, all of these gods. And so when this miracle happens and it's noise abroad, I don't know. We don't have a lot of information. Apparently, the man that got healed must have been pretty well known because the, the uh, fame of this miracle goes all through the city. Well, the people just go nuts over it. And it says um, uh, in verse 11, it says the people in Leicester start declaring that the gods have come down and are walking among us. So they start calling, depending on which um, uh, translation you read, they start calling Barnabas, who is Paul's ministry uh, partner, they start calling him uh, Zeus. Uh, some translations say they start calling him Jupiter. I, I think Zeus and Jupiter, I, I don't remember exactly, I think Zeus, Zeus and Jupiter might have been the same deities in uh Greek mythology and um, Roman mythology. Um, it, I, I may be wrong on that. Just anyway, they start calling him Zeus, Jupiter. They start calling Paul Mercury or Hermes, and um, which is Paul finds very distressing. He's like, no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not Zeus. I'm not one of the gods come down, and. Um, but the people just, they weren't having it. So the, there's this priest of the temple of Jupiter that starts bringing oxen to Paul and Barnabas to sacrifice to them. You know, one reason Jesus had to die on the cross was because he came out of a, of a mindset where uh, blood sacrifice was necessary. And um, even here, the, the, it wasn't just the Israelites that uh, practiced it. It was, I mean, the, the people... They worship Dagon and Diana. They they all made sacrifices, uh, animal sacrifice or the sacrificing of virgins. That was sort of pervasive through all that part of the uh, ancient world. And so, because Jesus was born in that system, he didn't have to go to the cross uh, to appease a sky god somewhere. God already, the Creator already loved us. God is love. We we couldn't. We never did lose righteousness. We lost the perception of righteousness. Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were fallen? Is what the Creator asks Adam. And um, so because the people from that part of the world believed in blood sacrifice so much, that's why Jesus goes to the cross. Um, because that's the only way people from that mindset would believe that their sins had been atoned for. So this thing just gets out of hand because all the people start worshiping Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Jupiter and all all these people that they probably would have considered false gods. So, um, and you know, when you're when you're bringing an ox in to be slaughtered for sacrifice, that's I mean you don't hide an ox. This isn't like bringing a lamb. This is 
I mean, they're bringing livestock in to sacrifice to these men, and it, the thing just becomes a dumpster fire. It just gets out of hand, and and they start freaking out. They actually, and this is sort of a, a Jewish tradition, they tore their clothes, and they started rebuking everybody, like, no, you guys are so off base. We didn't heal, I didn't heal this man for you to worship Jupiter or to, or to make animal sacrifice to me. And then, I don't know if you've ever had a bad day where you just think, nothing else could go wrong and then something even worse happens well this is what happens in um uh chapter uh, 14 of Ro of uh, acts because in verse 19 there are jews who live in that area who hear about this and they just totally overreact to it and they go find this is why the people of Lystra are trying to worship him as Zeus. And, you know, they, this isn't the only time they ever tried to worship Paul. Remember, like, uh, even in, uh, what is it, chapter 28? I think it's maybe the last chapter of Acts. I haven't read it in a while, but it's where he's on the um, uh, the island and um, he's, he's building um, a fire and a, a snake comes out of the firewood and attaches itself to his hand and it says the people thought he was a, a murderer who'd been exposed by God and then he shook the serpent off and then they worshipped him as a God. The the people in the ancient world were very prone to worship something they didn't understand. So Paul's freaking out because he's like, no, I'm not Jupiter. Stop worshipping me. Don't kill the oxen. Meanwhile, these Jews come along as if it wasn't bad enough and they take him outside the city and they start stoning him with stones until he is left for dead. They assume they have killed him. So, I mean, this is like, this is a situation that really gets out of hand. This is more than a hot mess. This is a, uh, a, a crap show. It's like, what the heck is going on here? And I don't know, there's even some, um, some people interpret this to say that Paul might have been killed multiple times and came back to life because it says they stoned him until they thought he was dead. And so finally some disciples who were there, they join a circle around him and he sort of comes back to life or climbs out from under the rocks. I mean, I just, my, my imagination just goes crazy on this because I'm thinking this is really a, this is bad, you know, this is bad for Paul. Because you've got the people who don't know who he is. Uh, it, it's just bad. It, it, it's bad. It, it's like I remember one time, I've shared this before, but I remember one time uh, years, years ago when the when the church in Conyers was really young and it was a multicultural church. And, and you know, that was a new that was a new idea for people, for black and white people. And. Uh, I remember this one day I had uh, this white family that was coming to the church really, uh, you know, on paper, really great church members. They came to everything, loved my teaching, really good givers, you know, low maintenance. But I remember one day uh, he, he, the guy called me and he says, uh, listen, we've decided to go back to the uh Baptist Church, First Baptist Church, and I said, "Why?" He said, "Well, we just think our season is over." I said, 
isn't it, isn't it because we've got a lot of black people at the church? I said, isn't that just really it? And he says, well, no, that's, I said, no, just, just tell me, isn't that really the thing? Because I just kind of got, I just kind of picked up that they had sort of that white evangelical excused racism. And he said, well, yeah, actually that does concern me. I think that, I think the church is getting too black. And I'm like, fine, go back to your white church, whatever. So I remember I, I, I left that phone call and um, I remember Debbie was with me that day and I said, let me tell you something, I'm not gonna cater to this Beelzebubba spirit out here. If, if you and me are the last two white people here, I don't care if I pastor an all black church, I am not gonna give in to this white racism. So I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm the whole morning I'm like, black power. <laughs> so then we go have lunch with this couple, black couple, who were equally important in my church. I think he held like five positions in the church. He was on the board and, and just, so, I, you know, I was like, you know, we, we sit down for lunch with them and I'm like, my people, you know, like, screw the white people, let them go to their clan meeting. So I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm the pastor of the black people. First thing they say is we're leaving the church. I said, excuse me? They said, well, we just think our kids are getting to an age where they can't relate to a white pastor and we really need a black pastor that can speak to black issues. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, seriously, uh, in the same morning, I got white people saying it's too black and black people saying you're too white. I'm like, what the heck? But that's nothing compared to this insanity where these people are trying to Work, they're trying to slaughter large animals to worship Paul. Meanwhile, the Jews, it's like a bad Marx Brothers movie. The Jews say, let's just kill him. So they stone him with stones. All right. So I said all that to get to this one verse. Because this is this verse I'm going to show you. It's, it's uh, Acts 14, 22. It's not the kind of verse you would usually hear me... Um, talk about it's not it's not the kind of verse that's typically on my radar screen because as you read the rest of the story it says that Paul either uh, yes I said Beelzebubba that's what I used to call it <laughs> um, Ed, yes but um, so I, I climbed out it, it, like Paul climbed out from under these rocks and it says that he goes back to Lystra. He goes back there. And you you know, you want to say, Paul, I don't think you've got good mojo going on in Lystra. I mean, the last time you were there, they, they thought you were Jupiter. They tried to kill oxen. The Jews who were there stoned you and left you for dead. I mean, I think, I think we need to, let's, let's don't put Lystra on the itinerary. Let's go somewhere where you know you had, you know, a, a less, extreme audience on both sides and he says this very interesting thing this is in verse 22 and I'm reading it from the New King James Version he goes back and he keeps ministering there in spite of all the insanity he keeps ministering there. and um, that right there there's a whole teaching in that about sometimes you have to go back and face the thing that you're running from and that may be a word for somebody this morning but um 
This is what it says in verse 22 in the New King James. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. All right. Now, typically in biblical interpretation, people have a tendency to just kind of throw in kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, heaven, afterlife. They kind of throw it all in there. And in their mind, it's sort of this, this weird mashup of all these, um, all these different ideas. Um, like even when in Matthew, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, if you look at the Greek, it's actually, he's actually saying the kingdom from heaven or the kingdom of the heavens. Okay. Now, um, there's, I don't know the exact number, but it's in excess of 40,000 Christian denominations. Just 27 books in the New Testament, thousands, thousands, thousands of denominations who all believe that the other ones are all wrong. And each of them sort of has a different, a different concept of how you enter the kingdom. Like, uh, if you were raised Roman Catholic, you had to be baptized, you had to be christened as a baby. You had to be, um, you had to be confirmed at a certain age. Um, if you were Baptist, you had to be water baptized. If you were apostolic, you had to be baptized in Jesus' name. Uh, each group has their idea of this is how you get in. This is how you get into the kingdom of God. But when you read the uh, Gospels, there didn't seem to be any one particular access point. Like, um, Jesus goes to... Zacchaeus's house who was like a he was like a bad guy who stole from the people and and they every everybody hated him and so he, he Jesus makes this big deal about remember Zacchaeus was the guy who was short in stature and climbs up in the tree and Jesus says I'm going to your house makes a big public show of it and and Zacchaeus is so taken that this holy man would come to his house because he's like public enemy number one and he stands up and he says, um, I feel so good about this. I'm going to restore fourfold everything that I've stolen from the people. And Jesus says, this day salvation has come to your house. Now, you can't make a doctrine out of that. But that was Zacchaeus's way into the kingdom. Or then you've got, I do talk about her a lot, the, the harlot who comes in and washes Jesus' feet with her hair. And Jesus says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. So that's her access point. And then you've got the thief on the cross who looks at Jesus and he says, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. None of these people prayed a sinner's prayer. None of them were baptized. Um, it was Christianity that formulized it and said, this is the way you get in. This is the way you go to heaven. This is the way you get saved. This is the way you get in the kingdom of God. And you can't really support that from scripture. Even even now what we have in evangelical churches is what you would call like an altar call and a sinner's prayer that's a relatively new idea that that sort of came in with 
evangelists like Billy Sunday and, and Billy Graham, and they sort of popularized that idea of, of coming down front after a service and, and confessing and, uh, out of Romans 10, 9 and 10 and, and, and uh, receiving Christ as your Savior. So you get all these terms like saved and born again and whatever, and, and uh, some, of, some of these Christian groups are so dogmatic about what they believe that if, if they hear that you came into the kingdom some other way, they would they'd be like, oh, well, you ain't saved. You're not in the kingdom because you didn't come in the way that I came. All right. That's why I believe when when uh, Moses wrote the 91st Psalm and he says, he who dwells in the secret place of the most high. To me, the secret place is your it's your secret. It's like your way to God that nobody else can fully empathize with or understand or emulate because it's it's yours it's unique to you it can't be grandfathered in okay um and yet there's something about this phrase i don't know why i always find this verse very um uh, it resonates with me and i'm not a big proponent of suffering or anything like that but there's something about this that rings true to me because he says we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of god now let me um, let me clarify something. I do not believe in this God somewhere that's testing people all the time. They're testing their faith. I don't believe I don't believe there's this big cosmic chess game going on uh, with um, with a deity that's seeing. Like I grew up hearing people quote this verse of scripture all the time. And they really took it out of context. It's uh, it's First Corinthians ten thirteen that says, um, and the King James says, "There hath no temptation taken you that is not common to man, but God will the temptation make a way of escape that you'll be able to bear it." And so the way people interpreted that verse, uh, I used to hear it like if somebody was going through something terrible, people would say, "Well, the Bible says God won't put on you more than you can bear," and that's really not what that verse is saying. And there's something about when people would say that, even when I was a kid, I would think, I don't think that's right. That doesn't feel right to me. It feels like God's just jerking you around. Like he won't put more on you than you can bear. It kind of reminded me of when I was a kid, there was this game that was based on the concept of uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't remember the name of the game, but it was like, it had a little plastic camel and you would add all these things to the the basket that was on the back of one of its humps until finally uh it, it the camel broke and and his legs would go out from under it and that's kind of the way people would talk about theologically like well i know you're going through a lot you're having your whole job experience but he won't put on you more than you can bear and there's something about that that just seems really sinister to me like wow it's kind of harsh god you know like well, I guess I can put up with this cancer because God wouldn't put on me more than I could bear. I don't think that's right. However, there's something about when Paul says we must enter the kingdom through many tribulations, something about that rings true with me. I want to explain it. I don't think God's testing you all the time. I don't think God's punishing you for stuff. I think life can test you. I think I definitely think life can put you to the test. But I posted, I post things along this line a lot, but I posted this little meme. 
I think last week sometime. And it says, when you learn to see the lesson in every situation, things don't affect you the same way they used to. You begin to grow through everything you go through. You start shifting your energy to create what you want and you stop worrying about what you cannot control. I'm going to read that again. When you learn to see the lesson in every situation, things don't affect you the same way they used to. You begin to grow through everything you go through. You start shifting your energy to create what you want and you stop worrying about what you can't control. And uh, a few days before that, I posted one that says, um, when you stop saying, why is this happening to me? And you start saying, what can I learn from this? Everything in your life shifts. That's what I want to talk about today. All right. So, um, basically when Paul says to the people of Lystra through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God, he's acknowledging like, I don't know what happened here yesterday, but you guys were worshiping me, trying to slaughter animals and, and the Jews left me for dead. And yet, he's, he didn't say God made it happen. He's saying, when stuff like this happens, because I had the courage to go back and face it, instead of running from it, I'm, I'm back here. I'm back. You didn't run me off. I, I, I'm, I'm here showing my face. And this is how the kingdom is revealed in me. Now, last night, I, I, I wanted to... And I am going to teach, I'm going to bring this into my teaching. But I started doing a study on it, I started doing a deep dive, and it's it's such a, there's so much to it that I can't, I would have to do like a whole series on where I was going with this. So I'm going to give you the abbreviated version, okay? First of all, let me establish that in what we call the book of Revelation, it's not revelations. Uh, it's the Greek word apocalypsis. The apocalypse uh, um, apocalypse just means unveiling. It doesn't mean an end of things. It means the, the, the revealing of Christ. Um, and so John the Apostle, instead of being martyred, was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And he says that on the Lord's day, he was in the spirit and he has this dream. It's a vision. If you literalize things in the book of Revelation, you've completely, you're missing the entire point of John's dream. Because it's, it's, it's a dream, it's an allegory, it's a metaphor. It's like when he sees seven-headed dragons coming up out of the ocean, He's not talking about real monsters. He's all of these things are symbolic, and they were mostly symbolic for the seven churches of Asia Minor who were going through persecution at that time. Because he says, "I must show you, I'm going to show you things that must shortly come to pass." Okay. And so he sees things like a lake of fire, which which is not literal. It's symbolic. It's it, it's it's uh, uh, the the purging that takes place in your journey. And he sees a crystal sea, and he sees all of these symbolic things, a sun-clothed woman. All of, None of these things are literal. I, I'm just, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but if you literalize, basically, if you literalize the scriptures, you've, you've just missed the point. The, the Eastern people who wrote 
the books that we've included in this library called the Bible, they were mystics. They weren't talking about literal things. And there's something that theologians call the, the Nicodemus effect. Nicodemus was the, the man who came to Jesus in John chapter 3 by night, and he says, um, um, we, we know that you're from God because nobody could do these miracles unless God was with him. And Jesus says, unless a man's born again, he can't see the kingdom. And Nicodemus says, how can a man, when he's grown, enter back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus is like, duh, Nicodemus, I'm speaking spiritually. I'm not talking about you as a big 200-pound man going prenatal and trying to, I mean, are you kidding me? And that's why, so, this is why so many modern um, evangelical Christians are so susceptible to conspiracy theories and stuff because they don't, they don't know how to hear things and they, they, uh, they take things way too literally. And um, like Jesus never talked about the end of the world, he talked about the end of an age and all, all that sort of thing. So the last, I don't know, two or three chapters of Revelation he uses the metaphor of God having a city. He calls it the New Jerusalem. And the thing that I was studying last night is um, the, the number 12 in this city, which is metaphorical. It, it's just everything's about the 12s. It's, uh, it's 12,000. Some translations say furlong. Some say stadia. It's, it's 12... 12,000 by 12,000, there's 12 gates that have the names of 12 tribes of Israel and then uh, 12 walls that have 12 uh, names of the apostles and, and uh, 12 um, foundations of jewels. And it's just 12 after 12 after 12 after 12. And then he talks about uh, people coming out of the 12 tribes. There's, there's uh, 12,000 uh, that came out of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and that's where you get, if you've ever heard the, the, the number 144,000, like the Jehovah's witnesses talk about it, but 144,000 is in a lot of the religions. It's in Islam. You see it come up a lot. You see 12 in a lot of the ancient books, especially out of that part of the world. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know how much I'm really into numerology, but I was, I was interested, like, what is the deal with the 12s? Everything's 12, 12 times 12. And, and I remember, um, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe they've taken it so literally that they literally believe there will only be 144,000 people saved out of all eternity. And um, they may not even be the only group that believes that because they don't understand that John was seeing a revelation of, um, in, in a, it was a dream, it was an allegory. It was, uh, it was um, metaphorical. And um, back in years ago, uh, when I used to do a lot of street ministry, I used to, not far from here, I used to stand out in the streets and preach. And sometimes I would go door to door and knock on doors and evangelize what we called evangelism. I don't even think, no, I don't even really call it evangelism. Now, the evangel is good news. I don't know that I was really giving good news to people. I was giving them an ultimatum. But anyway, I mean, I don't think the phrase, if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? That doesn't sound like good news to me. 
Anyway, um, many times when I would be out ministering, there would be Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses out there with me. I mean, some, there'd be some neighborhoods where a Mormon would go knock on a door and then I would knock on a door, then the JWs would knock on a door. And it was, so sometimes we'd break for lunch and we'd end up talking about, you know, what we believed. And one day it was really hot. It was a day in August and we were out there ministering, knocking on doors. And I was having lunch with some Jehovah's Witnesses guys. And I said, so let me get this straight. You guys only believe there's literally 144,000 people that are going to be saved. That's the number of the elect. And they said, yeah. I said, well, then why? I mean, are you part of that number? And they said, we don't know. And I said, well, why are you out here trying to get converts? I mean, I would think if I believed there was a finite number, I would want to keep all my options open. Like the more people I bring into this that adopt this ideology, that's going to lessen the odds for me to be one of the chosen ones. I mean, if I believed there was a limited number of chosen ones, I wouldn't be trying to bring other people in. I'd be like, no, we're full up, no vacancy. Let's keep, let's make sure, you know, it's like, let's make sure we win the salvation lottery. And um, it's amazing to me how people have literalized numbers like a, a seven year tribulation period or a thousand year millennial reign. When clearly when you read scripture, like when when uh, this, the psalmist said, uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, a thousand just meant infinity. It, it didn't mean there were literally 1,000 hills that, that God owned cattle on. Uh, li literalists have one thing, a, a real encounter with the Holy Spirit will make you see the poetic side of things and not be such a literalist. But anyway, um, I and part of this because I am, you know, I'm, I am a city dweller. I am an urbanite. I am happy in the city. I want to live in the city. Isn't there traffic in the city? Yes, there's traffic in the city. Lots of people here and they have cars, hence traffic. I didn't ask you to come. People say, you couldn't pay me to live in the city. I didn't even invite you. So stop saying that. I'm happy in the city. If you want to live in the country, if you want to live in the suburbs, namaste, mazel tov, that's fine. I'm happy here. Aren't there homeless people in the city? Yeah, right right down there, under there, they're camped out. Yes, it's part of it. I didn't ask you to come. I like being in the city. Okay. So... I love the idea, I, I love the idea of God having a city. Right? When Jesus said, uh, you are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, I, I, I love that, I love that um, imagery, because I, I understand that. I understand the concept of a city. I like the idea of a city of God, even though I don't think it's a literal place, okay? One reason I don't think it's some futuristic place out in eternity is because when you read John's description of it, he's talking about it's a light into all the nations and it has a tree that whose leaves are for the healing of the nations and outside the city are unbelievers that the spirit and the bride uh, uh, say come in. Um, yes, you're right, Dr. A, there is traffic in, in the burbs too. Yeah. Yeah, I spent many years in Conyers. I don't know if you've ever been on 138 on a Saturday. Don't tell me about Atlanta traffic. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, I mean, my favorite pop song ever 
is uh, Petulia Clark. Uh, You can always go downtown. I love every line of that. It's like my theme song. So, this idea of God having a city that comes prepared as a bride out of heaven, he's talking about he's talking about the kingdom of God being a mindset. All right, what's this got to do with? through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. Just hang on, hang on. Um, the He defines this city and he says uh, it has four walls. It's a, it's a city that's built four square. And um, there's three gates on each of the walls. And... Um, so there's 12 gates, everything about, let me go ahead and tell you what, what I think 12 means. 12 to me, 12 means totality. 12 means everything. 12 means all of it. 12 is, you know, it takes um, 12 months for the earth to completely rotate uh, around the sun, which is why we have 12 signs of the uh, zodiac and um, the, the, Time is based on a 24-hour period that is two sets of 12, uh, 12 anti-meridian and 12 post-meridian from noon to midnight. So 12, to me, 12 means completion, universality, 12 is all of it, all right? Like, to me, when I see that there will be 12,000 people saved out of each of the tribes of Israel, 144,000 represents everybody, all means all. It's just a numerical way of talking about inclusion. It's every, ultimately everybody will get this, okay? Ultimately everybody will move to the city of God. And um, so when he, he the city's very bedecked in jewels and each of each of the foundation of the city or, or some precious gem. But the two things that really stand out, even if you kind of have a pedestrian idea of the Bible, you've heard of the idea of pearly gates and streets of gold. You've heard of those two things. And John says, he says, when I have this dream, I see there's four sides to this city, which that can even be symbolic of the compass points, north, south, east, and west. The four sides of the city are your past, your present, your future, your spirit, your soul, your body. It's everybody you've been. It's everything that you are. It's everything that you will become. It's the totality of your life. It's the breadth and length and depth and height. It's all of it. It's the 12. Okay. So he says, I saw that each of the gates to the city were made out of pearl and they were made out of one pearl. It wasn't like, it wasn't like a, um, um, gate that had pearls put on it like like it was uh, bedazzled it, it, it was one big pearl which you know would mean there's some really big oysters out there somewhere <laughs> but here's the thing about what I believe 
gates of pearl are in light of Acts 14.22. Through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. Um, if you know the way a pearl is um, developed, you know, an oyster on the inside of it has this uh, soft membrane and um, when the oyster is in the ocean, sometimes it will get a grain of sand caught in that membrane. And the oyster doesn't have any way to spit it out. It's, if you've ever looked at a piece of sand under a microscope, it looks like a piece of glass. It's jagged, uh, it's sharp edged. And if you were an oyster uh, that got a, uh, a grain of sand caught on the inside in that soft, tissue it, it could be very painful and so the uh, oyster tries to expectorate it. he tries to spit it out but he can't he doesn't he doesn't have the capacity to do that he can't get rid of it so he starts secreting a um, substance out of its that ooey gooey center and starts uh, coating the um, grain of sand with that mucus and it sounds disgusting but that's what it is and as the water as the current of the water continues to flow through the oyster that thing rotates and rotates and rotates and rotates until uh it it hardens and it becomes this beautiful pearl so a pearl it's beautiful in itself because it's really one of the few gems that maybe the only gem that there's nothing humans can do to to develop it it's complete it's a complete natural uh thing it can't be mined like like uh there's a whole symbolism about coal under pressure becomes a diamond so there's something to that but particularly the pearl because it comes out of a living thing and uh so the, the pearl is symbolic of something painful in your life that you can't get rid of it's just a fact of life it's just part of your totality and you've got to figure out a way to coexist with it and not let it break you but let it make you whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger and so the pearl which starts out as an irritant actually becomes this very valuable thing. So when John sees this, he has this dream of a city, this beautiful city. Um, and the only way you can get into it is to go through a gate of a pearl. To me, what that says is, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. And, I, and I'm going to explain that before I close. So just hang on. So there's, there's something beautiful about it it's like the pearl is being realistic the pearl is you know this is just this is just the hand that I've been dealt and I've got to learn to coexist with it and instead of letting this thing mess me up I'm gonna turn this horrible thing in my existence into this beautiful pearl I mean not everybody can do that not everybody can um, be proactive to the point 
that they could say the worst thing that ever happened to me turned out to be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Not ever. I mean, I believe when, when Jesus is straight as the gate and narrow as the way and few there be that find it, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the way to salvation. He's talking about the way to this mentality. Not everybody gets there. Now, I haven't even gotten to the good part yet, but hang on. The other thing that John sees when he begins to walk in the city, he goes through the, the gates of pearl, the gates of uh, the metamorphosis to something that would turning something painful into something that's beautiful. And then he said, I noticed that the streets were paved with gold, but it was a kind of gold. If you know anything about actual gold, the purer gold is, the softer it is. Like most jewelry is made out of um, uh, 14 karat gold because it has enough uh, other metals in it. It's not so pure that it's it's not ma it's not malleable. You don't make jewelry out of 24 karat gold because the finer and purer it is, the softer it is. And and John says. He says, this gold, these, these um, streets in the city of God, which is another way of saying the kingdom of God. There's, the gold was so pure that it was actually transparent. He said the city was built in layers. And I could see through it. I could see up above and I could see down beneath. It didn't look, streets of gold in his vision didn't look like what we would picture gold was. He said, this gold was so pure, it was transparent. Now, the same way that I believe a gate of pearl is symbolic of learning to turn your pain into a pearl, uh, a street of gold, if you know anything about gold, gold is purified in the fire. The scripture says, when, you know, when you're tried in the fire, you will come forth as pure gold. And he says, this gold was so purified it had actually become transparent. To me, that is symbolic of this. Let me, let me tell you where I'm going with this. This is where, this is what we all want to aspire to in the kingdom of God. Not just to love suffering, but to make suffering make sense. Um, to understand that sometimes the only way out is through. That you don't always get deliverance. Sometimes you have to change your mentality about what is and let the thing make you stronger. And so that a street of gold, to me, symbolizes your path that has been purified by fire. You've been through some stuff and it has burned out the ego, the pride, the trying to prove a point. And it's just made you transparent. You could tell when you meet people who the kingdom of God has been revealed in them. They, they don't feel sorry for themselves. They don't blame anybody else. Um, they don't complain about who did what to them. They have no sense of self-pity. And they've just, they've just been through enough stuff. If I weren't teaching, I would use a word. They've been through enough excrement that the fire has just burned out all the 
pomposity and arrogance and um now there's some people you see them and because they didn't know how to respond to the kingdom because they only saw the bad side of the city the city just did a number on them and you meet them and you're like wow the city really beat your beat you up and you see they're just whipped like life has taken a bite out of them and they're defeated there's other people you meet and you see they've been through some serious stuff but they're like you know what it's all good like i'll give you a, i'll give you a case in point um joseph in the in genesis sold into slavery by his brothers they try to commit fratricide they uh sell him to some ishmaelites he's sold into slavery and, and he's like a teen young teenager uh, he goes to work for Potiphar, and uh, Potiphar's wife comes on to him, and he resists her, and so she says that he raped her, and he gets thrown into prison on a false rape charge. It just, it just goes from bad to worse. I mean, if you if you follow the story of Joseph through Genesis, if you just see a little piece of it, you think, ah, this guy cannot catch a break. What the heck? I mean, jo Joseph just goes from bad to worse, and so finally. At the end of the story, I mean, he's had all these years to plot his revenge on his brothers, all these years to really calcify in his self-pity, all these years being in a foreign land where he didn't even speak the language, all these years to say, buddy, if I ever get a chance to get those guys back, I'm going to show them. And he ends up, you know the story, I'm fast forwarding through it, but he ends up the Pharaoh of Egypt. And that's when the famine in Canaan takes place and his brothers come to ask him for food. They think he's long dead. They don't even recognize that it's him because they hadn't seen him since he was a teenager. And um, when they finally realize who he is, this is in Genesis chapter 50. It says, well, they're going to he's going to kill us now. And he looks at them in verse 20 and he says, am I in the place of God? He says, I'm not going to kill y'all. Y'all, you guys are my brothers. And he said, furthermore, what you meant for evil, God used it for good, or otherwise our whole families would have starved in Canaan. When you see that, you're like, man, that is a fully actualized man who, he's, he's, he's gone through the gates of pearl. He's living in the city of God, and it's the light for all the nations. And there's a tree in that city whose leaves are for, for the healing of the nations. And so... He looks at them and he says, I'm not mad at y'all. I don't have anything to prove. Uh, look, I'm ended up as the Pharaoh of Egypt. That's a man who's walking on streets of gold. He's saying, I've been so purified. He says, yeah, I've been to hell and back all these years in prison and everything. But whatever. I mean, it's all good. Look, look where I am and look where we are. And he reunites with them. And, the, and his father, is J Jacob, is still alive. And they bring him from Egypt. And it's... Oh, man, it's just beautiful. If you ever get a chance to see, I've seen different um, productions of it, but one production of Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat that I saw uh, where it says, um, Each of the brothers fell to his knees. Show him some mercy, mighty one, please. And they all bow down, and suddenly they bring in this imagery of the sheaves of wheat that he had had the dream of, and oh man it's just if you understand what's going on it's very moving but joseph is a is a um poster boy 
for someone who's been through the gates of pearl and is walking on the streets of gold who's like it's all good i'm not mad at anybody i've, I've everything's ended up well you guys hurt me but you know in all in all honesty i was full of myself and always rubbing my dreams in your face something even, I, I even understand it i've made peace with it all the, the city if you don't know how to live in a city the city can either make you very wealthy it can open you up to all kind of amazing things or it can the city can be cruel and if you don't learn how to respond to tribulation correctly it can destroy you if however you become self-actualized to where you say all right instead of me saying why is this happening to me i'm going to start saying what can i learn from this then you start the, the grain of sand starts becoming a pearl and the the fire that you thought was going to kill you actually burns out it burns out all the impurity and you're able to live a transparent life you got nothing to hide anymore now um my oldest son jared he's back in la right now but he's in uh he's been sober for a couple of years now and he's very involved in um aa he he does several meetings a week and speaks at several meetings and uh probably gonna start his own chapter and so we've talked a lot about the 12-step program and i've i've said to him before i said i'm i'm always trying to draw the analogy well like 12 is such a powerful a powerful uh, concept in the scriptures of totality the, the the city of God is 12 by 12 by 12 12 apostles 12 you know uh, 24 elders that are made up of 12 apostles and and 12 tribes and everything's 12 by 12 and 144,000 is 10,000 times 12 10,000 people out of each of the tribes of Israel and I really do believe there's something for people who deal with addiction, there's something really powerful about the 12 steps, but they're just really good. Uh, Bill um, Wilson wrote the book in 1939. And it's just, they're just really, everybody could probably benefit from a 12 step program. Things like making amends with the people you've hurt and that kind of stuff. But I was reading a little bit about it last night about why he wrote that. And he said, when he was writing the book, he said, I wanted there to be more than six steps. I wanted to give people something tangible they could work with and he said it just flowed out of me as 12 steps i just wrote a, the extra six and i came up with the 12 steps so i was thinking about that like wow 12 is so pervasive in john's revelation about totality and completion and i went through again last night and i read them because there's the 12 steps and the 12 traditions and 12 12 12 12 12 and every time i see 12 now i'm like it means that the nth degree, the, the fullness, the allness, the everything. When, when you look at the 12 of your life, it's everything that's brought you up to this point. The, 12, the revelation of the 12 is when you look back at your life and say, you know what, if I could change anything, I wouldn't at this point, because if anything had been different, I wouldn't have turned out the way that I am. That's, that's what I'm talking about. That's the gates of pearl. That's the streets of gold. And um, the twelfth step of the twelfth program is—I'm not, I'm not quoting exactly as he wrote, wrote it—but the twelfth step is 
I am to a place now where I want to help other people who are still walking up these 12, these 12 steps. Um, this may sound like an extreme statement, and I, I hope you hear the spirit in which I'm saying this. Earlier this week, there was a shooting in Atlanta. A woman randomly walked into a building and shot, I think ultimately three people died. And uh, I didn't even, I didn't even know what had happened and my phone started blowing up and people started asking me if I was okay and I posted about it and come to find out that night, um, I, Ken stays out at uh, Greensboro during the week, but I, I had ordered food from Uber Eats and I walked down and I always say hey to the concierge because I go, I go out and meet the Uber drivers when they deliver the food. And I said, hey, uh, Leonard, how you doing? He said, well, I'm just trying not to get shot. I said, because of what happened today? He said, well, that was one of our buildings. Uh, this woman came in, it, one, of, one of the buildings that, uh, the, our management company manages that building. The, the company that manages this building manages that. And he says, we don't, we're on lockdown because we don't know if there's something going on with concierges or whatever. I said, wow, I didn't, I didn't even know that. And my, my driver was real late getting there because he was caught there where the shooting had happened and there were still police cars everywhere. And I, those of you that asked me if I was okay, I totally appreciate it. I'm not, I appreciate that you care about me. But when people would say, are you okay? I would say always. And I know that that may sound arrogant, but I'm saying that to say, don't ever worry about me because I'm, I'm okay. I'm always okay. I'll always be okay. Some people will say, oh, you shouldn't say that. You never know what's going to happen. No, it doesn't. Let me tell you, I live, I don't, I don't just live in downtown Atlanta. I live in the city of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? People say, what, what about the afterlife? I don't, I'm not preoccupied with the afterlife. I know that the people go into another dimension. I see it in the scriptures. The, the people who have left here are still existing somewhere. I, I don't believe they're in traditional heaven or hell, but they're, they're in some dimension. I mean, even in, uh, you know, uh, in the Old Testament, Saul goes to the witch of Endor and she is a medium and she um, contacts the, the spirit of Solomon who had already um, uh, gone on and he prophesies over Saul and on the Mount of Transfiguration Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus and and the, the disciples knew who they were so your loved ones that you think have died they haven't died they're just living on another plane so I, I do believe that life goes on I don't need finite explanations of what that is I don't to me just walking on literal streets of gold that that's that's not a big incentive for me. I mean, like, I mean, how much, how much gold can you put? I mean, it's like, whatever about that. To me, this has a much deeper meaning. And I will always be okay. And I say that, yeah, I say that in humility, but I've, I've come through the gates of pearl. I walk on streets of gold. Uh, I am okay. I will always be okay. 
again, don't be offended. If you were one of the ones who asked me if I was okay, I appreciate the concern. I'm glad that I'm glad that you love me like that. But can I just say something really extreme? I would have been okay if I'd been shot. And I know that sounds like, whoa, don't say that. Don't put that out there. I'm not trying to create some scenario, but you like, I don't live in fear. My goal is to become the freest man who ever lived. And I'm about 80% there. Um, and, and here's, here's the thing about the 12 steps and the 12 things in the city, 12, 12, 12, 12 by 12, 12,000, 144,000, 12. It's just go, go read the last, I don't know, especially chapter 21 of Revelation. It's just, everything's 12. Um, to me, 12 is making sense of your life. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for things or believe for the best. I, I, I'm not I'm not saying you should just give in to suffering or, you know, I'm, I, that's not if, if that's what you're hearing, you're you need you you need to hear more maturely what I'm saying. Um, to me, the sufferings that cause you to enter the kingdom of God is when you can say, I believe God will deliver me from this fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow to Nebuchadnezzar. I'll always be okay. Uh, Jesus, I taught him this before. Remember when I taught about Jesus vibrating at a higher frequency? And I said, there's one level of consciousness that says, stop the storm. And he did that. When they woke him up in the boat and said, don't you care that we perish? He says, peace be still. But Jesus was operating at something even higher where he was asleep in the boat where the the weather didn't even matter to him the weather did, he didn't even care you know it's funny i don't want to make more of this than it is but this past meditation weekend that we had is the first one of these that i've done that i thought i don't even care about the weather i'm not going to speak to the weather i'm not going to speak to the clouds i don't want to spend my whole time contending with nature like we've done before whatever happens happens if it rains so what it's the first time we've ever done one where there wasn't, a, there was no threat of rain whatsoever, and rainbows out the wazoo. Uh, it's just Sunday morning at the sunrise meditation. There was rainbows everywhere we looked. There was rainbows with no rain. It's funny that when you stop caring about something, it doesn't matter anymore because it doesn't happen. Sometimes it's the resistance of something that causes the thing to happen. What you resist persists. So here's the point of all of it. Um, your 12th step in the city of God is when you get to the place where you could say, yeah, pray for me if you want to. I mean, it's fine. I, I enjoy, I like the prayer, but I'm going to be okay with or without you. You know, Paul got to a place in uh, Philippians 4, where he, and this is not a smart thing to say if you're trying to raise money. But, they, you know, they sent him an offering by Epaphroditus. And he writes them in Philippians 4 and he says, It's great that you sent me money. He said, But I'm rich. I have everything. My God shall supply all my need. Uh, but you had more need to give than I did to receive. The fruit may abound to your account. It's like, wow, Paul, if you say that, people aren't going to send you an offering. Let me tell you something. I appreciate every offering that you send. Um, but I, I want you to send it because you believe I'm good ground. 
because you uh, because you're in agreement with me, not because you think I'm not going to be okay. I'll always be okay. I mean, if God has to uh, send ravens to feed me or send me to find money in the fish's mouth, I will always have money. I will always have creative ideas. I, I just always will. Um, and it's because I live in the city of God. I've already been through stuff and they didn't, the stuff didn't break me. It, it revealed the kingdom of God in me. And when I hear, when I talk to people and I hear somebody has resentment or they're carrying a chip on their shoulder or they think, well, my life would have, would have been okay if such and such hadn't happened. And they're still mad at some ex-spouse or somebody that abused them or something. I think you're not there yet. Because when you get there is when you're like, yeah, it sucked that it happened, but I'm okay and I'm stronger for it and I can face anything now. And if let me tell you something, if that one didn't kill me, I came up out of that rock pile and I'm like, well, nothing can kill me now. I mean, that's kind of what Paul, whoo. That's really what Paul was saying to the people of Lystra when uh, the Jews tried to stone him with stone and left him for dead. He, he virtually rose from the dead and he's like, well, that didn't kill me. What else you got? And there's something about living in that mindset. That's the kingdom of God. That's the city of God where you're like, I've already been through stuff. This whatever's happening now. Is that this is nothing. This is nothing compared to the stuff I've been through. And whatever happens, whatever I face tomorrow, that I, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of the glory which shall be revealed in us. Like whatever, whatever. I, I'm not going to live in fear. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen with the economy? Look, if you're still, if you're still. Um, basing all of your decisions on the natural economy, you're not in the kingdom yet. Because the kingdom of God has nothing to do with inflation or, uh, like when people say, well, I, I can't give anymore because I can't afford it. It's like, well, you don't, you don't get it. And I'm not gonna try to explain it to you because it, it, it'll sound like I'm trying to get money out of you. The people who think on a higher level are like, I can give because I'll always have money. And, and it's like, um, when you think of the concept of one giant pearl, it's because everything in your life is connected. Everything is everything. It's not a bun It's not. It's not gates of pearls. It's gates of pearl. The I've I've been through the. It's gates of process. And at some point, if you're in the kingdom of God, yeah, you keep praying, keep sending your intentions out there. Yeah, it's fine. I, I got it this morning and prayed for my family and prayed for my kids and I, like there's I, I'm not anti-prayer I'm just saying um, when you know that you know that you know you're already you already have citizenship in the kingdom of God the the city of God and you could only get there through tribulation like there was no there was no easy way in. That's why when people say the way into the kingdom is to confess Jesus as Lord, I'm like, eh, I don't know. I don't know that I could support that. 
from what I read in the scriptures. I think the way in the kingdom is I haven't been through some stuff where you're seasoned, where you're you're um, flexible, where you're transparent, where you got nothing to prove. So now when I hear people who are still blaming somebody else, I got I, I hear people say, "Well, my you know my ex-husband." It's all his fault that I'm this way. And you think, when were y'all divorced? Back in 1976. You're like, oh man, you need to get in the kingdom. Like whatever. The guy may have been a complete jerk. He might have been a lowlife. I'm not defending him. I'm not even saying you shouldn't have left him. I'm saying you got to move past that because you're, you're free of all that stuff. In the kingdom of God, there's nobody that could keep you. No, Nobody... Nobody can take that grain of sand out of the oyster part of you. Nobody can take your pearl. It's a pearl of great price. I have so many things I could say about this, but I've, I've said a lot. So I'm going to leave it at that. Um, bottom line is I want you to make peace with your life. If you got something going on, you need me to pray for you. I'm still going to pray for you. We're still going to believe for the best. But while that's happening, I want you to start learning to trust the process. You're going to be okay no matter what. I know, my God, I've told that story 10 million times about getting my stuff back off the bottom of the river. But let me just refer one more time. When that happened, it was three years ago now. When that happened, I said to the... The guys with me, it was Ken and Howie and Jerry. I said, I'm going to get all my stuff back uh, tonight, t today, I'm be before midnight tonight, when I go back to Atlanta, which is symbolism of midnight being 12. Um, I'll have all my stuff and everything will be working. But I'm also going to say, this sounds like parallel realities, I'm okay if I don't get the stuff back. And I, that nearly sounds like, well, you're... You're speaking out of two sides of your mouth. No, I'm not. I'm saying it's an abstract concept. I'm going to get all my stuff back. I don't care if I get my stuff back. The more you experience that kind of thing, the more you can go to sleep in the boat. And you're in the, you're just in the city. You're in the kingdom. And if you get stoned with stones, you'll climb out from under the rocks and you start preaching again. And you'll be in your 12 steps to say, I'm so, I'm so good at this point. I'm like Joseph talking to his brothers. You even have to ask about me. I'm always good. I'm reaching out to you now because I want you to come through that gate and walk on those streets with me because it's beautiful. It's beautiful living downtown. Da -da 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 downtown. Da, 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 downtown in the city of God downtown downtown that's where I want us all to live alright um, if you haven't given in a while which is most of you uh, please go to bishinthenow.com and get caught up on that uh, this is your community. You need to support it. You need to believe in it. So go take care of that. You know who you are. So go give. If you want to give to me directly, I've got all the cash apps. And I'll receive them with gratitude. Um, 
I, I love, you, you know what I love? When I get money from you, not that money equals love, but it's like I feel the love. It's like, it's not the money as much as it is, ah, I just felt that little burst of love from you. And that's, that's awesome. And it is very meaningful. So, um, next Sunday, don't tell me you forgot. I want to see you in that theater. It's going to be the first Sunday of September. And we're going to have a wonderful time. All right. I love you. I'll go read your um, comments. I speak a blessing over you in the city of God. Peace. Peace.